This is exactly right. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a journalist, author, and podcast host. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired investigator with experience solving some of America's most notorious cold cases. Together, we host Buried Bones, a historical true crime podcast on the Exactly Right Network. Each week, we examine a different case from history and use our years of experience and 21st century forensics to bring new insights into these very old tragedies. Like the time the Sausage King of Chicago's wife went missing in 1897. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Follow Buried Bones wherever you get your podcasts. No child, no adult really wants to have a disorder. And so a condition is something that people can understand. Like, you know, um, uh, you might have diabetes. It's a condition. Uh, you might need to wear glasses. It's a, that's a condition rather than a disorder, which feels like something's wrong with you that you're not going to be able to fix. And that just feeds into a fixed mindset. And I'm not interested in supporting that. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day, no matter who you are or where you came from. With increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew with Dr. Sharon Saline. Dr. Sharon, clinical psychologist and author of the award-winning book, What Your ADHD Child Wishes You Knew, Working Together to Empower Kids for Success in School and Life, and the ADHD solution, Card Deck, specializes in working with kids, young adults, and families living with ADHD, learning disabilities, and mental health issues. She has a unique perspective as a sibling in an ADHD home, combined with decades of experience as a clinical psychologist and educator clinician consultant, assists her in guiding families and adults towards effective communication and closer connections. Dr. Sharon lectures and facilitates workshops internationally on topics such as understanding ADHD, executive functioning, anxiety, different kinds of learners, and the teen brain. She is a regular contributor to AttitudeMag.com and PsychologyToday.com, a featured expert on mass appeal on WWLP-TV and a part-time lecturer at the Smith School for Social Work. Sharon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction, and it's great to be here. Yes, we have been talking about having this conversation for some time, and now it is happening. Yes. I was thinking, okay, here's my, my, my first question is, what came first? Becoming a psychologist as a result of your experiences or becoming a psychologist and then specializing in ADHD, among other things, because of your experiences growing up? Uh, I would say it was the second, but not as directly. So I became a psychologist because I was interested in 
um, in the field and some, and many psychologists go into psychology because of their own family backgrounds. And then I found that I was working a lot with people with ADHD and they felt very familiar. And then my nephew was diagnosed and then things sort of unfolded in my family that kind of led me to believe, oh, this is why this feels familiar for me. Mm-hmm. So um, that was my little uh, foreshadowing for our listeners. Please tell everyone what your, what your, the personal story that it just enriches your professional clinical work. Well, I, I grew up in a family where a pretty intense group of people. Um, there was definitely uh, emotional dysregulation and hyperactivity. And in particular, I think my brother was labeled that way. Um, but in those days, we didn't, there was really wasn't treatment for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and when my, my nephew kind of started school, um, it became clear that this is what was happening. He and he received an evaluation and then, um, you know, things just kind of fell into place a little bit about me thinking about my own family and how things unfolded and some of my brother's challenges and my parents' challenges with my brother. Um, I think since I've written the book and in the last five years, there's been a lot of research about uh, women with ADHD and how Mm -hmm. it can look differently. Mm -hmm. Um, I've always been a pretty anxious person. Um, And I also can be passionate and have a big personality and um, really difficult, a lot of difficulty managing time in Mm. that, you know, I tend to run late. I think I can do more in a given amount of time than is humanly possible. And so I've come to realize that I think I have a more mild version of ADHD Mm. um, that really kind of, that exacerbates the anxiety that I live with. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm hoping to write my next book about, you know, ADHD and anxiety, because there's so much overlap and, um, so many people struggle with them together. Yes. And so thank you for sharing that. Um, it's always so interesting as someone, you know, who's an expert in something and then realizing that oneself and one's family also has those characteristics. It's such an interesting process in our family. And for me, it was dyslexia, same sort of coming through the back door. Um, and it's, it's, isn't it just amazing that you can have this set of skills that are focused on other people. And if it doesn't fit exactly in that box or those boxes that we are trained to look at, we can be completely just unaware of our own tendencies in that, in that area because of years of compensating and just, just like, Oh, this is just what I do. This is just me. And, and not being able to connect that dot. It's, it's fascinating. It is. And, you know, and, and, I think that it is a differential diagnosis between ADHD and anxiety is complicated anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, um, on when, when women go through menopause, um, there, 
because of the, you know, the sort of withdrawal of estrogen as a modulating factor in their brains to help with memory and emotion and motivation. Uh, We do see that people who were able to compensate in some ways before are not able to compensate now. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, the blessing and the curse of compensation and having right. these um, these abilities. It, it masks it, it both masks um, challenges uh, so they don't get identified, and um, at the same time, it's a um, coping and adaptive skill to get through life the best you can. That's exactly right, and and I think that you know what we want to really talk about when we talk about living with ADHD um, or anxiety or, or depression or any of the friends that come with ADHD, like dyslexia, twice exceptionality, level one autism, we want to identify how people are, 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 um, are, are coping and managing and what are the tools that they're leaning into to help them get through. And then we want to sort of, uh, you know, strengthen those. And then we also want to, um, pay attention to some of those challenges and offer resources to those challenged areas so that they can, um, they can grow too. They may Mm -hmm. never be the same at the same level as the strengths, but you Mm -hmm. know, with the awareness that, Oh, this is an area where I struggle, like with time thinking I can do too much in a given amount of time, then I have to do a better job of really estimating. uh, Actually, this is probably going to take, you know, um, it's not going to take 10 minutes. It's going to, I'm going to give myself an hour. Right. So, um, right. So, yes. so let's be real about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you yeah. mentioned the word strength and, um, we are completely aligned in that approach, that strength-based approach, which I know is the cornerstone of the work you do and is, um, peppered throughout your, your book. Um, well, two things you mentioned. So strength, strength-based thinking and, uh, ten- attention, attentive awareness, which we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. What I wanted to ask you first is I, I, as you were talking, I was remembering when, um, ADHD was a, um, early specialty of mine, um, because I had a mentor who specialized and we know how that, those go. So I yes. you know, took a deep dive and worked in the field and, and still do. And so I was reading everything at the time, and this was, you know, 90s, early 2000s, um, all of the um, the journal articles and the ADHD, mm-hmm. the, bef- not, not attitude, right? So this is before um, attitude. And I finally had to stop reading because it was so negative. It was yeah. just so negative, pathological, and... Um, I just, I was like, how is this helpful? I mean, research, of course, is helpful to talk about, okay, yes, you can, there can be more of this and more of this and more of this. We know all that. But it was so negative. And, and yeah. I'm wondering what your experience was and how you've been able to turn that on end. Well, sorry for me to jump in and say yes, but that's yeah. exactly the point. You know, the thing is that if, if you grow up with a neurodivergent brain in this neurodi- neurotypical world, so... Um, you already receive a lot of information throughout your childhood and your adulthood about the ways that you're missing the mark, mm-hmm. that you are different. And the information that you receive from the universe about that, the environment, school, parents, whatever, generally doesn't feel very positive. It's about what you're doing wrong. And so what happens is that people then who um, – who, you know, are what I call outside the box thinkers, you know, develop a feeling of, oh my goodness, you know, when is the next time that I'm going to mess up? 
that I didn't know I was going to mess up. I'm going to step in it. And I don't even know that that's what's happening. Um, and so there's a kind of uh, vigilance that starts to occur early on, a hypervigilance even, which we see uh, in anxiety. And so this is, this is part of um, why anxiety rates among people with ADHD are so high, 50% for adults and um, minimum of 34% for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we want to think about how we're working with kids, you know, we want to help kids learn to believe in themselves and to have a toolbox of resources that they can use, you know, not always a hammer, not always a wrench, but to understand that in this particular situation, I actually need a screwdriver. Um, mm-hmm. And in this particular situation, I actually need a needle and thread. Um, and so I think that with a lot of the, um, the research on ADHD, it's been all about what's wrong Mm-hmm. And not, hey, this is this is something that isn't effective. How could we work on it to make it more effective? So mm-hmm. my motto is let's do more of what works and less of what doesn't. Mm-hmm. Because then we're um, enhancing things that are already serving us and going well. And we're trying to turn the volume down on and, and regroup and restructure those things that aren't. Mm-hmm. Very well said. I, as I realize we're diving right in because we have fun talking about this stuff. I'm wondering if we should take a step back and just for you to give as simple as you can, the, what you, how, what you consider ADHD. There's been, there's so many myths. There's so many different ways that people think about this. What would you say? What is ADHD? So, you know, when I think about ADHD, I think ADHD is a chronic condition that is marked by persistent inattention, hyperactivity, and sometimes impulsivity, that is more frequent and severe than is typically observed in people of the same age. Uh, It's a novelty-seeking brain. Interest fosters motivation. These are creative, outside-the-box thinkers. Um, But ADHD is also a performance-based what you could use the word disorder. I prefer condition mm-hmm. um, be, based on executive functioning skill deficits because everybody in the world has executive functioning skills, strengths, and challenges. Mm-hmm. And people with ADHD have more severe and more numerous executive functioning skill challenges than people who do not. That's part of the definition of having ADHD. The reason that I don't like to use the word disorder is, you know, I come out of uh, the family therapy world and um, did a lot of training with narrative therapy and um, systemic thinking and have worked with kids for over 30 years. Um, No child, no adult really wants to have a disorder. And so... Uh, condition is something that people can understand. Like, you mm-hmm. know, um, uh, you might have diabetes. It's a condition. Right. Uh, you might need to wear glasses. It's a, that's a condition mm-hmm. rather than a disorder, which feels like something's wrong with you that you're not going to be able to fix. And that just yeah. feeds into a fixed mindset. And I'm not interested mm-hmm. in supporting that. No, totally agree. And, um, and we now also have the um, wonderful community and um, 
and space of neurodiversity. And, okay. you know, when we think about these brains as all brains being different and having different purposes, different strengths, different challenges of this neurodiverse right. world, it starts to not only normalize it, um, but it helps, it helps uh, broaden the conversation. And, you know, when you before earlier, when you said, you know, living with a neurodiverse brain in a neurotypical world, my thought was, man, I wonder how much longer we're going to have a neurotypical world because it seems like brains are getting more and more neurodiverse. Well, it's interesting because the term neurodiversity was coined in the late 60s by a sociologist named uh, Judy Singer. And that term meant that no two brains are exactly the same and that every person has things they're good at and things they need help with, and that there's actually no such thing as a normal brain. And so her, her research basically said, I don't believe in applying neurodiversity to a person. Neurodiversity is a human experience like ethnic diversity or religious diversity or gender diversity. And under the umbrella of that, what, what she coined was neurotypical and neurodivergence. In today's parlance, it's all mixed together. And mm -hmm. so uh, people have heard, he, hear about neurodiverse and that's the term that they use um, for people who are actually neurodivergent. Um, but I think it's important if we think about neurodiversity as part of human diversity, mm -hmm. because um, otherwise, uh, again, there's sort of a pejorative quality to it. And, you know, what I, I think the work that I do and the work that you do is trying to steer people away from that. Not, mm -hmm. in, not like, you know, add fuel to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So understanding, you know, what our ADHD children want us to know. One of the things that you lead with is attentive awareness and listening. Mm -hmm. right? Sounds so simple, but mm -hmm. it's not when you have a lot of stuff coming at you. It's not. And what we want to be able to do with a, a attentive awareness is to pay attention to meeting our kids where they are, mm -hmm. not where we think they should be based on some kind of random, idealized version of what someone's supposed to be. You know, and when I say random, I mean like because there's so many cultural projections about what that is. Um, so we want to meet people where they are. And that includes meeting ourselves where we are, being honest about what it is that we can offer. Um, mm -hmm. And when we ourselves are feeling flooded and need a break. Mm -hmm. And I am also thinking about, um, of course, one of the main tenets of the show of parents gaining in awareness about themselves to be the best people they can be in order to raise healthy children. And so how about this dynamic for parents to be aware of themselves when they don't have many of the qualities or characteristics of their um, children with this profile or condition? Mm -hmm. yeah. And the converse, when they actually are seeing themselves uh, mm -hmm. in their children and um, don't want their kids to go through some of the hardships that they went through. So are parenting with good intent, but maybe not with an effective response. It's so interesting that you talk about that because parenting with good intent, you know, I want my child to have it 
better or easier than I did. Mm-hmm. Whether or not I am neurodivergent or not, whether or not I live with ADHD, I I don't want my child to be bullied in the way that I was bullied. I Sharon was bullied, and I don't want my didn't want my kids to be bullied. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the same token, I have to realize that I am not my child. Like my child is having their own experience, and what my child needs is for me to show up and be there for them mm-hmm. and assist them in figuring it out. Most kids don't want their parents to tell them what to do. They may come and say, I don't know what to do. Can you tell me what to do? In which case, then they may listen and they may take that and run with it. But a lot of times when you tell your kid what you think the solution is, there's a, they're going to rebut it, you mm-hmm. know, because what they really want is to say what they're thinking feel like it's a conversation that you're having with them and then um uh and then coming out of that conversation having part of the some of the ideas that they have thought about as part of the solution for what's coming Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that they can choose to do and and that's hard and so one of the things that i'm thinking about when i'm thinking about attentive awareness is about mindful self-compassion you know, we want to be compassionate with ourselves and not expect ourselves to be perfect and um, and to, to compare other kids and how they're doing with our kids, which people do all the time. And we also want to be compassionate with our kids. And so really this comes from having a philosophy that we're doing the best we can with the tools we have available to us in a given moment. Mm -hmm. If we had other tools that might be more effective choices, we'd use them. Yes. Well, and that's where you come in um, with your tools because um, your tools have helped hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds, not only from the people you work directly with, but through your book and your lectures and your articles and a cornerstone, there's a lot in there, but a, a cornerstone is, of course, the five C's of ADHD. Mm-hmm. And right. so um, take us through the five C's because I know that anyone who listens to this conversation is going to come away with more tools than they had when they started. Thank you, Dan. That's a great question. So the first C is self-control. And this does not mean that you have it all together as a parent all the time. Uh, what this means is the the very, you know, very simple, uh, if you've ever been on a plane and the flight attendant says you put the oxygen mask on, your, on yourself first in the moment of a crisis and then on your child. That's what I'm talking about. Because when kids, particularly kids with ADHD, are dysregulated and you become dysregulated, there's no hope for them to get hmm. regulated. No. Um, and so what happens in, you know, a lot for a lot of, of children with their parents is they have some feelings that are really big and they can't contain them or they don't understand them. And so they export them onto the parent. They kind of back up the dump truck and say, here, you know, have this. And they do that by provoking an argument. They do that by having a meltdown, whatever it is. And as parents, we like, we import that and then we hold it. And then we start to royal with, with emotions that aren't necessarily ours. 
Um, we can also feel we can see that dump truck coming and we can try to brace ourselves, um, but we're still provoked because the thing that we've prepared ourselves for is not exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about self-control, what we're talking about is actually being able to manage ourselves as adults first and then assist our kids in managing themselves. Mm -hmm. So if you as a parent are starting to feel triggered and you can have physiological signs, a knot in your stomach, shortness of breath, your voice is getting louder, that's a good sign that you need to like go to the bathroom Mm -hmm. (laughs) or step outside for a minute and recalibrate to settle. Mm-hmm. Then you can work with your child because you will be more centered and grounded. Um, and this is so key. I'm sorry. This is like so key. So key. So I just want to st- pause for one moment because your your five steps, which we're going to go through, or the five C's, um, they are in sequence for a reason. And if you if we cannot regulate ourselves, all bets are off in the situation with our dysregulated child. Like we're not going to get anywhere except yelling and meltdowns and everyone feeling terrible about themselves. That's absolutely correct. So um, part of that process, and I go into this in my book, I'm not going to go into this now, is what I call the STAR method. In my book, I call it stop, think, act. But in the years since I realized we need an R for recovery. Mm -hmm. So we're going to plan in advance for a a pause in the action and what we're going to do during that pause in the action and how long. Then we're going to come back together for a think. And the think is, okay, um, this happened. You know, is there anything you would have liked to have done differently? Um, I don't know. I can't tell you. Uh, I don't want to talk about it. Okay. So what are we going to do to move forward? Mm -hmm. Right. Right. What's the next right action? Then we're going to talk about what that is. And then we're going to do that. And then we're going to allow for time to recover because it takes the body time to process the intensity of the adrenaline, cortisol, norepinephrine rush that comes from the amygdala hijack. Mm-hmm. up to 20 minutes. And so, um, you know, basically the time for teaching about what happened is not within the hour of the event. Mm-hmm. You know, people need to settle. You need to settle. You can make a time and, and, and agree to come back later in the day or maybe the next day. But right now in that moment where things are very dysregulated, we want to really use a plan that you come up with. I call it pre-gaming. Pre-gaming. I like that. Something that is very important, what you just said, is an hour is too soon. Most of the time, we're trying to keep ourselves from actually intervening, stepping in, teaching, um, (laughs) disciplining in the actual moment, which we know is not good, never works, makes things worse. And now what you're saying is even an hour, our bodies are still trying to regulate. So this is something to, we just need to come back to it and let everyone chill out. Let our our physiological and neurochemical systems chill out and revisit later, which is also amazing modeling for our kids to show that, you know, we can loop back and talk about something when we're calm and we're all in the right state of mind to be productive. Yeah, exactly. And and, and it also um, helps us as parents really sort of think about what's most important here. Mm-hmm. 
All right. The next C is compassion. Compassion. And this is about meeting our kids where they are, not where we think they should be based on Mm -hmm. their age, based on their intelligence, uh, based on their physical capabilities. It's where they are. Who, mm-hmm. Where are they now and mm-hmm. what? It, how, how do I meet them there? And it's also about having compassion for yourself as a parent. You know, raising kids is challenging. Raising kids who are neurodivergent can be extra challenging. And so what we want to do is to be able to, um, to treat ourselves with some kindness Mm-hmm. And, and, and to treat our kids from the perspective that if they could do something differently, they would. They just don't have the tools yet. Yes. So compassion is key. Um, parents have an enormous amount of pressure these days to be amazing parents with all the information that's out there. To have these is this so much pressure and um, mm-hmm. compassion, and, and it often trickles down to our kids, like our frustration with them is actually our own worries about them. And so, yes, compassion for ourselves, compassion for them. And, um, and I love this, the next C, because it's, it's, um, it's essential uh, mm-hmm. to raising the kind of person we want to raise and have buy-in from that person. And that's, of course, collaboration. Right. And this is when we work with our kids towards solutions rather than dictate to them what the mm-hmm. solutions are, particularly for kids <clears throat> with ADHD who spend a lot of time hearing about listening to, you know, what they should do, how they should do it differently, how their ideas are off, mm-hmm. um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they start to lose a sense of self, a sense of confidence in their abilities. And so we want to collaborate with them because these are kids who who need buy-in. And in fact, I would say this entire generation of young people not only expect to buy-in, but they they need it uh, in terms of feeling like they're going to participate in whatever plan you create. And so this is when we talk to our kids and we listen, you know, what's your idea about this or what's, you know, one way uh, that you would like to see us argue less. And we hear what that is. And then we might share one way that we would like to argue less. And those things could be the same side of the, of, of, of one coin. Mm -hmm. I would like you to stop nagging me about um, getting to school on time, says the child. And the parent would be like, I would like you to get to school in time so I don't have to nag you. Right. So, right. so that's a win-win, right? We want the same thing. So to try to identify a goal that we share and to look at what you as a parent could tweak and do a little differently and mm-hmm. what your child could tweak and do a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. We know that the ADHD brain matures a little more slowly in terms of its biological maturation process, the myelination and connectivity Mm -hmm. from the prefrontal cortex, the frontal lobes, the seat of executive functioning skills through the rest of the body. About Mm -hmm. three years uh, delay is what we see, as much Mm. as three years of a delay. So we want to incorporate um, some of the things that they're interested in doing to build a sense of confidence and maturity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love the buy-in, and it makes perfect sense. When we think about ourselves as adults and how 
children often get talked to, we would never want to be talked to that way a lot of the time. We'd be like, no way, I'm not doing that just because you are telling me to do that. And when someone at work or a friend or anyone invites us in for a shared problem-solving session, for a shared uh, goal and um, strategy, it's a, it's a whole different ballgame, whole different ballgame. Right. And, yeah. you know, and that's actually, you know, so much more is accomplished through an invitation than a directive. Yes. Now, there are times when things cannot be negotiable. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you're, you're, um, you're, you've lost the heat in your house and, you know, everybody has to put a coat on or we have to go to, you know, grandma's house where she has heat. You know, those things are not negotiable. But, you know, and I understand that. And we call those, you know, emergencies or the sometimes rule. But for the most part, um, we want to have a conversation. Does this mean that our child makes all the decisions? No, mm-hmm. it's that they have a say. Yes, right? yes. In, in something that makes sense to them. Yes. Now, this next C is particularly challenging for everyday life, our busy, everyday, often overscheduled life, A, and B, if you happen to be a parent with similar neurodivergence and executive functioning challenges, right. the idea of consistency is sounds simple, but takes a lot of discipline. It does. And probably for you listening, you're thinking consistency. Oh, my God. Like, that's so difficult, uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Sharon. Yes. And when I think about consistency, I think of two things. So I want to clarify that. The first is about steadiness. It's not perfection. Mm-hmm. So it's more times than not. Right. So if we're aiming for steadiness, it's a lot easier to think about consistency than if we're aiming for perfection every single time, because there is no such thing as perfection. Recently, I was listening to um, meditation, and the teacher, I think it was David Gandelman, said, you're not perfect. The part of you that thinks you're not perfect isn't perfect. And the part of you that thinks about that part isn't perfect either. <laughs> That's great. And I just love that. So we, we're aiming for more times than not. Right. Mm-hmm. That's our goal, steadiness. And the way we're going to do that is with routines and also with what I call efforting, because people have to effort steadily. So what does that mean? Actually, Daniel, laugh at this. Um, I got an email once from someone who was a psychologist and said, you know, I really liked your work until I read about this word efforting because you made up a word and I don't respect that. So now I'm not listening to your work anymore. Wow. And I thought, Okay, and you have to tell me this because why? <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right, right, right. It's so interesting, right? So the thing about efforting is that <clears throat> for people who are neurodivergent or kids with ADHD, LD, etc., it's not just trying. Trying is kind of like a toss-off. For them, it's a full-body integrational experience, mind physiology, physically, and emotion. So mind, body, and emotion. Those things have to come together to execute tasks that are in particular not interesting, not fun, and not 
you know, immediately rewarding. And so that's why efforting and steadiness go together because we're not looking for doing it right, doing it perfect every single time. We're mm-hmm. looking for that growth mindset. I'm going to try something. I'm going to see what happens. If it works out, cool. I'll mm-hmm. try it again. If it doesn't, I'm going to regroup. Mm-hmm. What I think is when I think back of, of also all my years um, working with these types of profiles, the cornerstone was uh, structure, predictability, and consistency, which mm-hmm. much of which we're talking about. But what I'm also very aware of, what was also missing in all of that back in the, you know, the 90s, the 80s, the late 80s, the 90s, and the early 2000s, in my experience, was not considering the actual child as a participant in the whole thing. That's exactly. What's, that's what's different. Exactly. Like, here's an example. I worked with um, uh, like te- a 10-year-old. And, um, of course, like, uh, you know, one of the parents was an org- a professional organizer. And the 10-year-old had ADHD and the father had ADHD. And every morning the 10-year-old would get up and, you know, get dressed. And there, the room would be covered with clothes on the floor, which was super irritating because then they had to like put them away that when they came home and it was a a tremendous source of tension between mom and child. And so I had a, I had had a session with the child. I said, well, what do you think's up? She's like, Dr. Sharon, I'm just a creative person. (laughs) I said, well, what do you mean? She's like, well, you know, like if I wake up and I'm feeling like I want to be purple today, I have to find my purple clothes and they're not together. So I have to open the drawers and find my purple clothes and then see which one of those I want to wear. I said, okay. So what do you think would help? And she said, well, if I had all my purple clothes together and my red clothes together and my green clothes together, I said, oh. That sounds like you've really thought about it. She's like, yes, I have. And I asked my my mom and the answer was no. I said, oh, that's really interesting. So <clears throat> we came back, met as a group, the whole family, mom, dad, and child. And I was like, so, you know, I'd like to try to work. We all agree that the fighting in the morning around getting dressed isn't working. Everyone nodded. Mm-hmm. So I talked with... Um, uh, with um, Sari, and Sari had an idea about what would work. Do you want to share that? And Sari shared the idea. And it took like a month of therapy to get yeah. the parents on board. And the thing is, the following week after, we, we, we just, we agreed on a two, um, two-week science experiment. Mm-hmm. That seems to work with people for me. Like we'll do an experiment. And then the first week the mom comes back and she's like, okay, uncle, 75% better. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't a hundred percent better, right, but it was right. better ish. Right. And that's what we want to think about. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You're triggering this memory with, uh, our oldest years ago, her room always looked very similar and my wife and I were brainstorming and our big, our idea was, okay, we're going to get a dresser, put the dresser in. It was a kind of a, a big closet that could handle a dresser. And so everything will be put away and then there'll be more space around the room to walk on all of this stuff. It was a more sophisticated plan, but that's the gist of it. It, it got worse. And about two weeks into it, I had this really novel idea. So novel, you're going to laugh, which is to actually talk to my daughter about it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so I said, 
honey, like this is what we did. This was our intention. It seems to be worse. What's going on? And she says, dad, when everything is tucked away in the closet, I can't see anything. I don't know where anything exactly. is. And yeah. I said, and I'm like, oh, wow. I said, well, what do you recommend? And I mean, she was maybe like seven or eight at the time, maybe eight. Yeah. And she said, you know, those like plastic drawer things that you can see through that they have at Target. Um, yeah. If I had those, I could actually see where everything is. I was like, oh my gosh, we have like a $20 solution. You know, and, and exactly, exactly. A price, actually, a priceless solution because right. of all of the strife. So, yes, everyone. Gosh, sometimes the uh, it's the simple, the simplest things about just asking our our children about their experience. Yeah, right. That that's so true. And then the fifth C is celebration. And so celebration isn't baking a cake because you ask your child to clear the table and they do that. Celebration is actually, it actually grew out of um, the positive psychology movement and the work of Dr. Barbara Fredrickson and her colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania. They found that the ideal positivity ratio was three positives for every negative. Now that's interesting because um, John Gottman says in marriages, it should be five positives for every negative. So I'm going to stick with three to one for right now, but you okay. can keep the five to one yeah. in your in your heads. Um, I think Barbara, uh, Dr. Fredrickson's was sort of, you know, in, in all areas, not just in the couple. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've spent time, Dan, and I'm sure you have asking people, noticing, well, let me ask you, for every positive thing that you hear, how many negatives do, do, do you also hear? I've asked kids this question. I've asked parents, educators, etc. The numbers are astounding. Anywhere from one positive to 10 negatives to one positive to 40 or 50 negatives. Mm. Because what kids will say or adults will say is what I tell myself not just what people tell me mm. as they mature. Mm -hmm. So celebration is actually validating and noticing when something's going well. Right. You know, right. not, not, you know, like, Hey, thanks for, you know, thanks for, um, uh, setting the table. High five. Appreciate how you put the forks in the glasses. That's, that's different. Um, you know, rather than why are the forks in the glasses? That's not how we set the table. You know, but to just try mm -hmm. to appreciate the creative outside the box brain that is actually doing the tasks that you've asked. Mm -hmm. So validation, mm -hmm. encouragement, and honestly, specific praise. I like when you um, helped me dry the dishes, it was fun to listen to music, and we did it, and the job went much faster, mm -hmm. very specifically. Mm -hmm. Praise yeah, like I think it's so important for us to remember that these kids and many adults continue to get negative feedback from the environment. It's just built into That's peers, right. to teachers, to coaches, um, and colleagues as adults. And it's so that this forms one's self concept, one's sense of self. And as you point out, those inner voices that we tell ourselves. And so mm. it is so key to have that awareness because we can only impact so much when our kids are off going to school. And that's what makes it, I think, like exponentially more important for us to be the ones to um, point out the positive and to boost them up. 
because they 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 look to us mm-hmm. for care and love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They most kids they are, um want their parents respect. Yes. Yes. Okay, we are winding to the parent footprint moment question, but before we do one final question, um, which I think we need to touch upon, and that is medicine, medication. Mm-hmm. You have uh, you have written, medication can help, but pills don't teach. So I was wondering if you can unpack that a little bit of your view on medicine and all of your years of working with these yes. groups of people. Medication can help, but pills don't teach skills. Right. So medication can improve um, the the actual the um, the rate of connections that are made on a neuronal level, and um, and the processing speed, and also some of the working memory, some of those more cool or unconscious skills. Sometimes medication can help with, you know. like not blurting things out or being able to have a little more distance between an intense feeling and a reaction. But really, um, as I said earlier, ADHD is a condition of, um, of, 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 of serious executive functioning deficits or challenges, as I prefer. And so uh, we can, um, the medication can kind of help re- help put you on the path um, but it, with re- but the skills still need to be taught over and over again to be metabolized the medication helps us hold on to them to integrate mm-hmm. them but it's not going to do it on its own some people would argue that some medication actually does really help mm-hmm. uh, you know, with improving some in things like impulse control, emotional regulation, working memory and processing speed. I think that's true, but it's not the whole nine yards. Mm-hmm. It's a portion of it. And it's the rest of it that we have to work on over and mm-hmm. over again. Mm-hmm. The uh, long-term longitudinal uh, study on this concluded from uh, NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health, over probably 15 years plus years ago now, the the most effective treatment and support was a combination of what we're talking about in medicine. And I was wondering, do you still feel that 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 holds? Yes. There's no question that I feel like that's the most effective treatment. But what we see often is for younger children in elementary school, parents are less willing to try medication. They want to try all of the behavioral interventions first. Mm -hmm. By middle and high school, when there is much more uh, demand on executive functioning skills to function autonomously than there has been previously, we see more referrals and more interest in trying medication, Mm -hmm. and that continues through um, post-high school. Yes. Okay, Dr. Sharon, the parent footprint moment question. Here we go. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on your life, your kids, and or those you love. I don't know. I need like seven years of therapy to talk about this with you, Dan. Um, We'll start now, and then we'll continue. We'll start right now. Okay. So I would say... um, that my second child and I struggled a lot when they were in high school. And um, they were very bright. And 
you know, did extremely well in school and went to college and also did well, but struggled in some ways and became depressed. And then we arranged for them to have an evaluation. And it turned out that I had missed my own mm. daughter's ADHD. This is really hard for me to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember talking to the person who actually evaluates gifted kids. And she said, Sharon, nobody would have caught this. Mm -hmm. Like the discrepancies are so big between the cognitive strengths and the uh, other challenges. Um, you can't beat yourself on up over this. Ooh, what can I do? I said, she, and she said, you know what to do, be different. And so that's exactly how I was. I asked for forgiveness from my child. Mm. I really was accountable about the ways that my own emotional dysregulation made things difficult. I was able to sort of talk to my people and realize that I have some of this too mm -hmm. and come clean. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the most major change that's happened to me in the last four years. Wow. And it's something that I am, it's very scary to talk about publicly, mm -hmm. but I think that if I can't talk about it publicly, who can? Yeah. Yeah. And as a result, you know, I have done a lot of work on managing my uh, dysregulation and my time yeah. uh, more effectively. And also, you know, really taking into consideration and having open family conversations about the role of ADHD yeah. in our household. I mean, it's so hard for me to talk about this and not yeah. cry, everybody. Yeah. I just want yeah. you to know because there's a huge amount of shame. Like, I'm an expert. Mm -hmm. I should have figured it out. Right. But you can't figure out what you're not being shown. So that's the other right. thing. Like, mm -hmm. you know, kids hide things from you. Mm -hmm. And if, you're, if kids are hiding things from you, how are you going to figure it out? Right. Well, thank you for your vulnerability. That's um, raw and fresh still from a temporal perspective and um yeah. it does go to show all of us it's you know no matter how much knowledge professional knowledge in whatever areas we have there's still the human factor and the relationship factor and the interaction between ourselves and our children and what we know about ourselves and don't and what we know about our kids and don't and it often is all balled up and complex and um yeah Yes. So if you can be courageous enough to to share this with us, we all can look at ourselves and try to have some kindness and compassion where we've missed the mark for whatever the reason, because it's mm -hmm. going to happen over and over again as a human and as a parent. That's right. And um, I think I thank goodness every day. I thank the universe for uh, Kristen Neff and Christopher Germer and the work that they're doing because mm -hmm. that has really been life-saving for me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for sharing your knowledge, your book, um, best-selling book, everyone, and uh, a whole tool of resources on your website. So please tell everyone where they can find your work. This is exciting. This is the fifth anniversary of my book uh, coming out. 
And you can find my book um, on uh, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, at your local independent bookstore. Um, you can also please check out my website, www.drsharonceline.com, where I have lots of free resources. And if you uh, sign up for my newsletter, you'll get one of those in your mailbox, a downloadable. Um, I also um, have a YouTube channel and I'm on Facebook and X. Uh, so follow me and we'll be friends forever. And I want to encourage you to check out my Facebook Lives that are twice a month on attitudemag.com. This is a great place where we come together and talk about issues with people from all over the world. Um, so I hope you'll join us for that. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all your wisdom with us today. And uh, we'll look forward to our next conversation with the next book that is in the works. Thank you. And yes. Thank you, Dan. It's, and I really want to just... Uh, you know, really uh, appreciate you as a host and the great questions and the real uh, honesty that in that you create so that I could share um, and the, just the depth and quality of this conversation. It's really fantastic. Oh. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Sharon. All right, everyone, you know what to do. Please share this episode with anyone and everyone you think will benefit. Thank you for being a part of our community. We love when you bring your community to our community. Thank you for your five-star reviews. They really do matter. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself that guiding question. I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by Pro Tunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.